Welcome. Thanks for tuning in to Grand Rounds, Connecticut Children's Office of Continuing Medical Education Pediatric Podcast. This podcast series will assist in developing new skill sets based on recent pediatric advances in a wide variety of specialties, identifying evidence-based data to support improved outcomes in pediatric healthcare delivery, increasing knowledge about research with implications for clinical practice. And now, here's Grand Rounds. Good morning, everyone, to Connecticut Children's Grand Rounds. This is a particularly special day as I am starting to introduce the Honorary Schwartz Lecture. And before we get started, I want to wish everyone a happy National Doctors' Day, which is tomorrow. Uh, I'll go on with my introduction of uh, our Division Chief of Pediatric Radiology, Dr. Doug Moot. And it's fitting that I get to introduce Doug today uh, because many of you may not know, but I started in radiology and switched to pediatrics. Dr. Moot, however, combines these two fields in an amazing way and has done such a great job for us. Dr. Moot came to Connecticut Children's from our friendly and sometimes more civilized neighbors to the north in Canada, and we were able to recruit him in 2013. Uh, Dr. Moot trained in Ontario and Nova Scotia, and uh, since coming here has had such an incredible impact. I want to first talk about his clinical skills. Many people know that when we have a J-tube that needs to be advanced by fluoroscopy, there's none other than Dr. Moot to call upon. He's an outstanding pediatric radiologist, and I can count many times that clinical care has been uh, improved and changed and shifted uh, due to his uh, readings and due to his help uh, in so many different uh, fields. In addition, uh, Dr. Moot has been the recipient of numerous teaching awards from all levels of trainees and has had multiple publications. And this uh, really culminated, I think, in 2015 when he was awarded our Connecticut Children's Physician of the Year. Most of all, however, uh, Doug, you are an amazing colleague and always a gentleman. Anyone who works with Dr. Moot will attest to that. So without further ado, I'd like to allow Dr. Moot to introduce our speaker today for the Honorary Schwartz Lecture. Good morning. Thank you. So I have the honor of introducing the annual Honorary Schwartz Lecture. First off, I wanted to just speak briefly um, about Andrew Schwartz. Uh, he really made his mark at Connecticut Children's before it was at 282 Washington. And when he passed away in 1989, at the time this honorary lectureship was started, his colleagues put a statement out um, at the time he passed. And I'm just going to read that because I think it summarizes what Andy represented to the pediatric radiology and pediatric community. His character really embodied the epitome of whatever pediatric radiologist strives for. He was knowledgeable and skilled in children's diseases. He was always an advocate for equitable patient care and his insistence on minimizing radiation exposure by performing the most appropriate procedure rather than what was merely requested was well known. He was constantly aware of the emotional and psychological needs of children's and their parents and he continually stressed this to the residents and staff. His wry sense of humor and calm demeanor helped all those through the frustrations we often encounter in trying to help others. His memory is honored by this annual lectureship in the Department of Pediatrics, which at that time was at Hartford Hospital, and all of us who think of him when we deal with our young patients. So when I think of Andy, I think of like a model of what I would like to strive to be as a, as a pediatric radiologist. This just shows the quality of lectures that we have been able to bring to Connecticut Children's. And today we're honored to have Dr. Tao speak to us as the 2022 presenter of the Schwartz Lecture. Um, Dr. Tao is the Chief of Pediatric Radiology at St. Louis Children's. 
Um, her training in medical school was at Washington University. And then she did her residency at Mallinckrodt and subsequently went to the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Dr. Tao serves on many committees in pediatric radiology and radiology, and she has many abstracts and peer-reviewed articles. But I think what she's really known for is being a great lecturer, uh, putting together beautiful clinical vignettes for um, pediatric radiologists and pediatricians. So I'm really excited to bring Dr. Tao to us today to speak to us on a practical topic, which is common abdominal emergencies in the pediatric population. Please join us today to welcome Dr. Tao to speak to us today. Thank you so much for that uh, wonderful introduction. I recognize several of those previous lectures and it is a great honor. We're gonna discuss the common abdominal emergencies in the pediatric population. I have nothing to disclose. So a couple of learning objectives for this talk. Um, we're gonna identify the six most common abdominal emergencies that you may encounter in any facility that provides care to infants and children. Um, that second learning objective is to develop an imaging approach for diagnosis of these abdominal emergencies. And finally, to recognize some normal variants, pitfalls, and mimics. Abdominal complaints are common indications for an infant or a child to be evaluated in both the emergency department or in the clinic. Causes vary widely and symptoms can be nonspecific. Therefore, imaging plays a critical role in diagnosis and directing treatment. So how do we, how do I as a radiologist help my pediatric and emergency room colleagues determine what is the most appropriate imaging? And one of the first questions I ask is, how old is the patient? Patient age is an important factor in determining appropriate imaging as certain pathologies occur in distinct age groups. In neonates and infants, hypertrophic pyloric stenosis and intestinal malrotation of ovulus are the primary considerations in emergent settings. Interceptions tend to occur in infants and young children. Appendicitis tends to occur in older children. And among all age groups, pneumatosis and non-exonal trauma can be encountered. One of the hardest age groups to evaluate are infants, as their symptoms can be quite nonspecific, ranging from vomiting, abdominal pain, lethargy, to bloody stool. But if we combine age and symptoms, we can offer an appropriate initial imaging strategy. If the patient has progressive projectile non-bilious vomiting at around four weeks of age, hypertrophic pyloric stenosis will likely be the primary diagnostic consideration. These patients will often be lethargic. Ultrasound will be the modality of choice for diagnosis. If the patient has bilious vomiting, intestinal malrotation will be the primary concern. Up to 90% of patients with intestinal malrotation will present during the first year of life. These patients will also have symptoms of abdominal pain, lethargy, and occasionally bloody stool. Upper GI is the study of choice for diagnosis of intestinal malrotation. Iliocolic intussusception typically occurs in infants and young children between the ages of three months and two years. These symptoms can present with any or all of these symptoms and ultrasound will be the modality of choice for diagnosis. Hypertrophic pyloric stenosis is 
the idiopathic gastric outlet obstruction due to abnormal thickening and elongation of the pyloric musculature. Risk factors include male sex, firstborn infants, and a positive family history. Abdominal radiographs can be nonspecific, ranging from a normal bowel gas pattern to marked gastric distension. These radiographs are from three different patients who presented to the emergency department with vomiting, and all were subsequently diagnosed with hypertrophic pyloric stenosis. Ultrasound is the reference standard for diagnosis. The gallbladder, pictured here, is a useful landmark as the pylorus is usually located subjacent to the gallbladder. If the stomach, as in this case, is insufficiently distended to outline the gastric antrum and pylorus, and we will often give the patient sugar water to drink to distend the antrum uh, to delineate the pyloric sphincter. The normal pyloric muscle wall thickness is less than three millimeters, as we can see here, this is measuring two millimeters, and the pyloric, normal pyloric channel length is short, less than 15 millimeters. The normal pylorus will also open during the exam and gastric contents can be seen passing through the pylorus. On ultrasound, the diagnostic criteria for hypertrophic pyloric stenosis are persistent pyloric muscle thickness of greater than or equal to three millimeters and a pyloric channel length of greater than 15 millimeters. As you can see in this example, the muscle thickness is measuring five millimeters in a channel length 2.4 centimeters. We will often see echogenic redundant mucosa protruding into the gastric antrum. Additionally, the abnormal pylorus will fail to open during the examination and gastric contents will not be observed to pass through the pyloric channel. The stomach will also typically be distended and can be observed to actively peristalse. Hypertrophic pyloric stenosis can also be diagnosed on upper gastrointestinal examination. Similar to its sonographic appearance, the normal pylorus is a short channel. The pyloric channel is elongated with delayed gastric emptying in patients with hypertrophic pyloric stenosis. Now, two pitfalls to keep in mind uh, for the diagnosis of hypertrophic pyloric stenosis are that equivocal cases should be monitored closely. Uh, these patients may meet diagnostic criteria within days after initial ultrasound for hypertrophic pyloric stenosis. Treatment is surgical pyloromyotomy. The pylorus may remain abnormally thickened and elongated for up to eight months after surgical um, pyloromyotomy. Ultrasound in this case was obtained two months after surgery and it demonstrated persistent muscle wall thickening and elongation of the pyloric channel, which makes it difficult to differentiate between normal expected postoperative changes versus recurrent hypertrophic pyloric stenosis or incomplete pyloromyotomy. Therefore, upper GI becomes the study of choice in the postoperative setting, as we can document normal gastric emptying, as we see here in this patient, despite a persistent, abnormally thickened, and elongated pyloric channel. Because vomiting is a very common presenting symptom, and the age overlap between hypertrophic pyloric stenosis and malrotation exists, 
the relationship that the superior mesenteric vein and the superior mesenteric artery is evaluated as part of a pyloric ultrasound. The superior mesenteric vein normally courses to the right of the superior mesenteric artery. Reversal of this relationship um, can be seen in patients with malrotation. However, it's important to keep in mind that reversal of the SMV and SMA is not diagnostic of malrotation, and these patients will be further evaluated with an upper GI. Ultrasound, however, is specific and specific, sensitive and specific for the gut volvulus because of the characteristic whirlpool sign due to swirling of the mesenteric vessels. Patients with intestinal malrotation will present with bilious vomiting due to obstruction from LADS bands or volvulus. Up to 90% of patients present within the first year of life. Again, as we saw with hypertrophic pyloric stenosis, abdominal radiographs uh, are also nonspecific and really should not be used to exclude malrotation and volvulus. Radiographs can range from a non-obstructive bowel gas pattern to absence of bowel gas. All three of these patients had malrotation with volvulus identified on subsequent upper gastrointestinal examination and confirmed surgically. Malrotation can be diagnosed on CT, such as in this nine-year-old who had presented to an outside hospital. Small bowel loops were noted to be located in the right upper quadrant, and the duodenum was not seen to be crossing midline on an abdomen and pelvis CT. This finding was confirmed on subsequent upper gastrointestinal examination. Infants in particular are very difficult to evaluate for malrotation on CT. This is a three-month-old uh, who had congenital heart disease and known malrotation. And really the only um, finding that we could identify on CT was the reversal of the relationship of the superior mesenteric vein and the artery. Therefore, the upper gastrointestinal series remains the standard for diagnosing malrotation. It can be performed with barium or water-soluble contrast. In the emergent setting, the contrast material can be administered via an enteric tube rather than orally. On frontal projection, the duodenum normally forms a C-loop. The second portion courses inferiorly to the right of the spine, then crossing midline. The fourth portion then courses superiorly on the left of the spine to the level of the duodenal bulb. On lateral projection, the duodenum is retroperitoneal, coursing posteriorly towards the spine. The duodenal bulb and duodenal jejunal junction are superimposed. Normal variants include a redundant duodenum, where the duodenum takes an undulating course. But the duodenal jejunal junction is still in its normal position to the left of midline at the level of the duodenal bulb. Another normal variant is duodenum inversum. This is when the duodenum folds upon itself to on the right of the spine, then crosses midline at the level of the duodenal bulb. Again, the duodenal jejunal junction is still located in its normal position. In patients with malrotation, the duodenal jejunal junction is not in its normal expected position. The duodenum may not cross midline, like in this case, remaining in the right abdomen. Uh, 
or the duodenum may cross midline, as in this case, but does not ascend to the level of the duodenal bulb. Malrotation is mostly seen in otherwise healthy children. However, malrotation uh, is associated with other gastrointestinal abnormalities, such as phallocele, congenital diaphragmatic hernia, also in gastroschisis, as we see in this patient. And it can also be seen in patients with heterotaxy. Chromosomal anomalies, such as trisomy 18 and trisomy 21, and in patients with congenital heart disease, such as this patient with hypoplastic left heart syndrome. Variations in the location of the duodenum account for the majority of misdiagnosis, misdiagnosed cases. The duodenal junction can vary in location due to laxity, and it is most pronounced in neonates. The DJJ can be displaced inferiorly by an overdistended stomach. It can also be displaced by distended small bowel loops or the colon, or even in the presence of a duodenal jejunal enteric tube. If the duodenal jejunal junction is not clear, a small bowel follow-through or a contrast enema can be performed to identify the cecal position. A cecum is abnormally positioned in the majority of patients with malrotation. The closer that the duodenal jejunal junction and the cecum are together, the higher the risk for volvulus. The characteristic appearance of a midgut volvulus is a corkscrew appearance of the duodenum. In cases of high-grade or complete obstruction, the proximal duodenum may be dilated with a beaked appearance. For patients with volvulus, the treatment is emergent surgery as the twisting of the bowel on the mesenteric on the mesentery results in venous obstruction and eventual bowel necrosis. For patients with, without volvulus, surgery, surgery is typically performed. However, um, some surgeons do now offer a watchful waiting approach. The families and patients are taught to seek treatment quickly if they develop symptoms of midgut volvulus. The surgical procedure for malrotation is LADS procedure. If present, a midgut volvulus is reduced, LADS bands are divided, appendectomy is performed, the small bowel is also placed in the right abdomen and the colon in the left abdomen. This is a teenager uh, with malrotation. She presented to the emergency department after a LADS procedure with abdominal pain. CT demonstrates the typical appearance uh, of the bowel after a LADS procedure with the small bowel on the right and the colon on the left. The third of the most common abdominal emergencies in infants and young children is intussusception. The classic constellation of symptoms occurs in less than 50% of patients, which include intermittent, colicky, abdominal pain, bloody stool, vomiting, and a palpable mass. The majority of cases are idiopathic in cause. If the patient is outside of the usual age range, and this would include neonates and older children and adolescents, we must consider lead points as the cause of intussusception. Intussusception can also occur in the setting of Hanak-Scholine purpura and hemolytic uremic syndrome. Uh, as you can see, this is a, a beginning to be a common thing. Uh, abdominal radiographs are insensitive in diagnosing intussusception. The bowel gas pattern can range from relatively normal 
to paucity of bowel gas in the right lower quadrant to small bowel obstruction. However, if we do see an intraluminal soft tissue mass on abdominal radiographs, this is a specific uh, sign for intussusception. While intussusceptions are definitely diagnosed on CT, as we see here in these two patients, this is a patient who uh, underwent a contrast-enhanced CT, and this is a non-contrast-enhanced CT um, on a different patient. CT is not the modality of choice. The sensitivity, specificity, and negative predictive value of ultrasound in children with suspected intussusception approach 100% and does not expose these children to ionizing radiation. The majority of intussusceptions are ileocolic and are encountered in the right admin. And therefore, you will notice that most of um, survey ultrasounds for intussusception will begin in the right abdomen, specifically the right lower quadrant. The cocentric, hypoechoic, and echogenic layers of bowel and mesenteric fat give rise to the target sign on transverse view and the pseudokidney sign on longitudinal view. So here's an example of an interception and this is an image of a kidney in longitudinal view. Differentiation between ileocolic and small bowel, small bowel intussusceptions is important as it can prevent unnecessary enema reductions as small bowel intussusceptions tend to be transient and spontaneously reduce. At our institution, um, if we suspect that it is a small bowel, small bowel intussusception, we will often uh, keep the patient in our department um, for follow-up imaging in 10, 15 minutes to document resolution. Uh, if it has not uh, reduced by that time and we still suspect that it is a small bowel, small bowel intussusception, we'll bring them back in half an hour to an hour to further evaluate. Iliocolic intussusceptions typically contain echogenic fat centrally. Small bowel intussusceptions uh, typically contain minimal to no fat. Um, some literature use a hyperechoic inner fat core diameter to wall thickness index uh, to help with differentiation between ileocolic and small bowel, small bowel intussusceptions. Ileocolic intussusception also commonly contain lymph nodes and ileocolic intussusceptions tend to be greater in diameter However, there may be overlap um, and size may not be a reliable parameter in younger children. In patients outside of the usual age range, uh, we look for a lead point as the cause of intussusception. Here is an 11-year-old who had an anechoic cystic structure, which was associated with an ileocolic intussusception. This was an ileal duplication cyst, which was the lead point for his intussusception. In this 12-year-old, uh, there was a large enhancing cecal mass that was causing ileal cecal uh, intussusception. Pathologic diagnosis was Burkitt's lymphoma. This next case is a 16-year-old uh, with known Hooch-Jaeger's syndrome. She presented to the emergency department with acute abdominal pain 
And she was found to have a long segment, small bowel, small bowel intussusception and ischemic bowel due to hematomatous polyps. Initial treatment of choice for ileocolic intussusception is non-surgical reduction, either with air or water-soluble contrast. This can also be done under fluoroscopic guidance um, using air or water-soluble contrast or under ultrasound guidance using either water-soluble contrast or um, normal saline. Contraindications to non-surgical reduction are peritonitis, perforation, and shock. These patients will undergo surgical reduction. The most important complications of non-surgical reduction that I discuss with parents are recurrence. Uh, recurrence occurs in approximately 20% of patients, typically within a few days to a few weeks. Uh, in a week, I've had a few patients coming back within uh, two to three weeks. And then the other two are perforation and reduction failure. Uh, these are representative images from a pneumatic reduction under fluoroscopic guidance. Here we see reduction of the intussusception to the level of the hepatic flexure and then to the ileocecal valve. Air was then seen throughout the small bowel indicating successful reduction of an ileocolic intussusception. Higher likelihood of non-surgical reduction has been associated with many factors such as small bowel obstruction, the length of symptoms, as well as fluid identified on ultrasound. But the two predictors that have been shown to have the highest association are distal location of the intussusception mass and the dissecting sign. These are two images from an attempted reduction on the same patient. The intussusception mass was encountered in the rectum Reduction was attempted with both air and water-soluble contrast. And as you can see with both types of contrast, um, air was dissecting as well as contrast between the intussusceptum and in the intussusceptions, resulting in loss of pressure. This patient went to the operating room and had to have a total colectomy due to extensive bowel necrosis. Uh, we then uh, now move to children and adolescents, and the most common abdominal emergency is appendicitis. Appendicitis is the most common indication for acute abdominal surgery in children. Highest incidence is between 10 and 19 years of age, and signs and symptoms are highly variable. In patients with suspected appendicitis, the imaging algorithm is ultrasound, as the initial study in patients less than 14 years, and CT with intravenous contrast for over 14 years of age. I will note that our institution, unless the patient is morbidly obese, we will almost always start with an ultrasound um, and then proceed to CT if clinically indicated. On ultrasound, the normal appendix is compressible it's blind ending tubular structure measuring less than six millimeters in diameter. Direct signs of appendicitis include a short diameter axis of greater than six millimeters. The inflamed appendix will not be compressible. The appendiceal wall will be thickened and hyperemic. If the appendix is not seen or if the direct signs of appendicitis are equivocal, 
Secondary signs of appendicitis are useful indicators of inflammation in the right lower quadrant and can support the diagnosis of appendicitis. Secondary signs of appendicitis are free fluid, abscess formation, and apodicolis, echogenic mesenteric fat, mesenteric lymphadenopathy, and abnormal adjacent bowel loops that may demonstrate abnormal wall thickening and decreased peristalsis. The absence of secondary signs has a high predictive negative value in patients being evaluated for appendicitis. At our institution, CT is performed in patients in whom the appendix could not be identified by ultrasound but had secondary signs of inflammation or in whom a high clinical suspicion remains. Keep in mind that the size criteria for a dilated appendix was established on compression ultrasound. Therefore, on CT, a normal appendix can have a diameter of greater than six millimeters in the absence of additional signs of inflammation. But like on ultrasound, appendicitis is diagnosed in, in the setting of a dilated appendix with surrounding inflammation. This is the case of a dilated appendix containing an apodicolith. In patients with suspected uncomplicated acute appendicitis, oral contrast is not given at our institution. However, if there is clinical suspicion for perforation or abscess, oral contrast can be given to aid differentiation between the pacified bowel loops versus adjacent rim-enhancing fluid collections, especially in patients with minimal intra-abdominal fat. And a quick mention for MRI appendicitis, it is definitely an option instead of CT to minimize radiation exposure. We offered a shortened study without intravenous contrast. Some mimics of appendicitis that we should keep in mind. The first one is inflammatory bowel disease. These are longitudinal and transverse views from a right lower quadrant ultrasound. This thickened bowel loop surrounded by echogenic mesenteric fat is actually the inflamed terminal ileum rather than the appendix in this patient with known Crohn's disease. Pelvic inflammatory disease uh, can elicit marked inflammation in the right lower quadrant and abscess formation similar in appearance to appendicitis. The inflammation in pelvic inflammatory, bowel, uh, pelvic inflammatory disease tends to be centered more in the pelvis rather than the right lower quadrant. However, the appendix can extend deep into the pelvis. Uh, therefore, uh, there's, there can be quite a bit of overlap in imaging findings of these two pathologies. Meckel's diverticulum and its complications can mimic appendicitis and the appendix. This is a 16-year-old who presented with abdominal pain, nausea, and vomiting. On CT, he had multiple dilated fluid-filled bowel loops with a transition point in the right lower quadrant. Uh, we found a blind-ending tubular structure, which was actually associated with the distal ileum, and we were also able to identify a normal appendix in the right abdomen. And this was consistent with the Meckel's diverticulum. And in surgery, uh, the surgeons noted multiple adhesions that was likely the cause of small bowel obstruction due to chronic inflammation of Meckel's diverticulum. Here is an example of a two-year-old who is presented for a right lower quadrant abdominal ultrasound due to pain. And this revealed free fluid and dilated bowel loops with 
consistent with secondary signs of inflammation. Because of his clinical status, uh, he was taken directly to the operating room and was found to have Meckel's diverticulitis. Here's another example of Meckel's diverticulitis in which there's a blind ending loop of bowel that was associated and arising from the distal ileum and surrounding inflammatory changes. On this 16-year-old on right lower quadrant ultrasound, we identified a complex fluid, fluid collection with adjacent and uh, thickened bowel loop and increased echogenicity of the mesenteric fat, consistent with secondary signs of inflammation in the right lower quadrant. On subsequent CT, we were able to find a normal appendix um, with a large gas-containing rim-enhancing fluid collection in the right lower quadrant. And this was from a perforated Meckel's diverticulum. The last two abdominal emergencies, uh, which can occur at all ages, and two that we should always keep in mind are pneumatosis and non-accidental trauma. Pneumatosis is gas tracking within the bowel wall. Pneumatosis can appear as linear lucencies or rounded cystic lucencies. Pneumatosis is most commonly associated with necrotizing enterocolitis in neonates. These neonates may develop portal venous gas and bowel perforation, resulting in pneumoperitoneum. Imaging is a component of staging of necrotizing enterocolitis, and the presence of pneumoperitoneum is an indication for surgical management. Beyond the neonatal period, pneumatosis is associated with congenital heart disease, immunosuppression, such as in children on chemotherapy or who have had an organ transplant. It is also associated with intestinal ischemia or in the setting of infectious or non-infectious colitis. Poor outcome associated um, is associated with congenital heart disease, organ transplant, a preceding ischemic event, graft versus host disease colitis, or portal venous gas. These are two different patients with congenital heart disease. This patient had hypoplastic left heart. Both presented to the emergency department with lethargy and sepsis. Both were found to have extensive pneumatosis and portal venous gas. This patient died within two days of admission, and this patient died within a week of admission. Abusive trauma um, can also occur in any age from infants to older children and adolescents. The majority of fatalities do occur in children less than three years of age. Children with abusive abdominal trauma um, have higher mortality rates and more severe injuries than accidental trauma. For a child with suspected abusive abdominal trauma, such as abdominal bruising, tenderness, or distension, or elevated liver or pancreatic enzymes, an abdomen and pelvis CT with intravenous contrast and a skeletal survey should be obtained. Small bowel injuries are common uh, in an abusive trauma, and they are more common in abusive trauma than accidental trauma. And types of injuries include hematoma, as we can see here, perforation, and mesenteric tears. The duodenum and jejunum are the most common sites of injury. The liver and pancreas are also common sites of solid organ injury. The radiologist may be the first person who raises suspicions for abuse. As a radiologist, we should alert our referring clinicians upon detection of bowel injury, especially with concurrent solid organ injury, or if the injuries are disconcordant 
with the mechanism in history provided. This is a toddler who had presented to an outside hospital with abdominal pain and distension after falling from a coffee table. As you can see, he had free intraperitoneal gas on abdominal radiographs and was subsequently transferred to our institution for further management and taken emergently to the operating room where he was found to have a duodenal perforation. His bowel injury was not concordant with the history provided. And upon further review, he had healing rib fractures on his abdominal radiographs. Therefore, he had been a victim of abuse. This is an abdomen and pelvis CT that was obtained on a five-month-old who presented with altered mental status and elevated liver enzymes. In addition to hepatic laceration, we found numerous bilateral healing rib fractures in the included portions of the lower chest. And therefore, we should always be aware and looking for evidence of abusive injuries, such as rib fractures, especially in infants in the setting of suspected non-accidental trauma. To summarize, age is an important factor in addition to symptoms in developing an imaging approach to infants and children presenting either to the emergency department or to clinic with abdominal complaints. In our youngest patients, the three most common emergencies we need to diagnose are hypertrophic pyloric stenosis, malrotation, and intussusception. The modality of choice for these diagnoses are ultrasound for hypertrophic pyloric stenosis, an upper GI for intestinal malrotation, and ultrasound for intussusception. In older children, the most common abdominal emergency is appendicitis. In children less than 14, ultrasound is the preferred initial imaging modality. And in patients older than 14, CT can be formed. MRI is now another option that's um, becoming more utilized instead of CT to minimize radiation exposure. We also discussed direct and secondary signs of appendicitis as well as some mimics of appendicitis. Pneumatosis and abusive trauma can occur at any age. Pneumatosis is most commonly diagnosed on abdominal radiographs, um, as well as can be seen on CT. In cases of suspected abusive abdominal trauma, CT with intravenous contrast and a skeletal survey are the studies of choice for further evaluation. Thank you for your time. Um, I will take questions after I do a quick plug for St. Louis. If anybody wants to come visit to St. Louis, let me know. Um, phenomenal restaurant choices and food. Uh, we have great parks around the city, um, in the city and around the city. And if you enjoy sports, a uh, fantastic sports city. And we signed Albert Pujols yesterday. Um, Thank you again so much. Um, it was a great pleasure and an honor to give the annual Schwartz Lecture. Dr. Tao, uh, thank you very much. Uh, th this is Juan Salazar, Chair of Pediatrics. I, I couldn't open the grand rounds because of a minor uh, uh, COVID-related illness, but I'm uh, recovering, so it's good, but it's good to be back with everyone. That was simply uh, a, the best uh, lecture that I've heard from a, from a pediatric radiologist. I have to, we, we're gonna save this for the ages, is what I can tell you, because it was absolutely spectacular. I know our residents that are logged in 
will use this uh, for their boards. Uh, I think you you gave at least five or six board questions and oh, how to answer oh, them properly. Um, and this will increase their scores, which is really, really nice. And for those of us who have to take recertification, we still have to take some of these, by the way. So so thank you. Uh, San Luis is a great city. Uh, uh, Hartford is uh, uh, equally good. And so uh, hopefully you can, next time that you give a talk, you can join us here. Uh, I, I, know so. Dr., I know Dr. Mood is still on, but he, he is on service. And so he is probably, he may be reading right now. So we're going to go ahead and... Uh, and open the, oh, there is Doug, okay, so he can certainly answer questions as well. So we, uh, we the, the panel is open for questions for, for everyone, uh, if you if you don't uh, mind putting them in the Q&A. Uh, and while people are, are thinking of questions, I, I do have one, and you know, most recently, uh, last past, past five, six years, people are now using a lot of, uh, you know, the handheld uh, ultrasounds in the, uh, in the E, by the by the emergence our colleagues in emergency <laughs> medicine who've gotten really good at this so can you comment on the uh, especially for appendicitis uh, you know the, the benefit of of using the you know the uh, the ed based uh, ed provider based ultrasound versus uh, uh, something that is done by the radiologist yeah so at our at our hospital our, our er physicians and colleagues are definitely using point of care ultrasound and um for, for them, I think it, it really does help expedite the next steps in management of patients. Um, but they still will, if they find something abnormal, they will still refer to us for the diagnostic imaging. Um, but I, I think it really does help in terms of, especially during this time, I'm, I'm no children's hospital was spared with high volumes, especially in the ER and patient overflow um, I really do think that it helped them kind of triage patients um, with uh, a bedside ultrasound. If, if there were signs of inflammation on, on their initial ultrasound, then they will refer them to, to us for the diagnostic ultrasound. Great, thanks. Uh, Doug, I don't know if you want to add, add to that uh, from our perspective here at Connecticut Children's. I think it's a similar one in that that you know point of care ultrasound is being done, but we we still will validate things, and I, I believe the surgeons you know like the additional information that the that the formalized ultrasound provides. You know we have like strict criteria that we give them, and and you know I think it's supplementary for sure. Great, uh, thank you. There's another question from Dr. Zellerite: Is uh, is virtual review as effective as in-person review and discussion of studies? That's a great question. That's a fantastic question, and it's something that we've, uh, we've not really struggling, but kind of debating. Um, we, in our section, we are currently in a hybrid model in terms of we do have most of our staff on site in person with our residents and fellows, and then we do have a few who are exclusively remote. Um, it's definitely a model that was started during COVID, and really we won't uh, I, I don't see us going back to completely in-person. I think our, our our surgeons definitely appreciate the in-person discussion so we can show cases and, and just, just, you know, friendly conversation and chit-chat, <laughs> um, even, you know, non-medicine and surgical related. Uh, but we have had brief feedback from some of our referring physicians that they also enjoy the, the virtual version. Um, our NICU conferences that we do every day was switched over to Zoom, a virtual format, and their team um, has not 
requested to go back to in-person. And I think really it's because they can stay closer to the NICU. Um, oftentimes they're running back and forth between unstable patients and codes. And we can show them findings projected on the screen rather when they used to come down into the reading room, everybody was huddled around one workstation. So for some instances, the virtual format has really, really helped. Um, I've also found that it's been helpful for our medical students as well, because they can join our Zoom meetings um, and actually watch and participate and read out with the images projected on the screen. So we have found um, advantages to offering both in-person and um, virtual. Great, thank you. Um, another question, uh, how do we know when to order a CT scan with contrast or without contrast? Uh, Dr. Moot, you, you can uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but most of the times I, um, I recommend a CT with contrast that really helps us give us uh, the most detail and be able to provide the most information to our pediatric and surgical colleagues. Probably the only instance where we may not need IV contrast and actually may not recommend IV contrast is in a setting of renal stones. Uh, the contrast can obscure some small stones. But most even in, in trauma, um, suspected infections, intravenous contrast is, is really going to be the most useful study. All right, very good. Um, the next one is uh, thoughts on using abdominal x-ray screening imaging for patients with low suspicion for malrotation volvules. Uh, it's, it's really not recommended. Um, we have seen cases where it looked relatively normal and it was positive. Um, so it's, it's really, we have discussed about using ultrasound as a overnight screening exam for volvulus uh, because the ultrasound is quite specific and sensitive for volvulus. Um, rather than the upper GI in the middle of the night. And then the upper GI can be performed in the morning to diagnose malrotation without volvulus, but not abdominal uh, radiographs uh, should not be used to exclude malrotation. Okay. And then the, the last question is uh, in, in terms of training point of care ultrasound, is that done by radiology or is that done in combination with uh, ED trained uh, uh, providers that, that actually do this procedure? So our ER, CICU, and PICU have their own uh, point of care program. Um, the NICU has, uh, we've recently started a point of care program with our NICU um, for catheter placement under, uh, under ultrasound guidance. I believe the... Um, the certification of competence will be mainly done by the NICU team, but we are uh, working with them in terms of training. Our sonographers are involved in teaching them how to use the ultrasound machines, um, how to look for what vessel they're in. But uh, at our institution, we, we, don't, um, we, we are not the ones that are certifying their competence. Thank you, Dr. Tao, for um, taking this opportunity to speak to us. It was really, I think, an important and very interesting topic. And I learned, I actually learned a lot from your talk. And I really appreciate your format and the clarity of your images. And I, I feel like it, 
in a stepwise fashion teaches a lot. And, and I, I learned a lot from how you present. And I thought you gave us some nice tips on indecision, which I'm going to add to my toolkit. So um, it's really been a privilege to have you participate as the honorary Schwartz lecture. It's an important lecture for our hospital. And I was pleased that you lived up to all my expectations. And um, I really thank you again from my heart um, and from the faculty and residents at Connecticut Children's. Thank you so much. I, I hope it's, it'll be an in-person next time. Thank you, Dr. Tao. It's really great to have you here. And thank you, Doug, for uh, inviting a great speaker. Thank you. You've done us proud. Uh, it's everyone, thank you for joining us. Uh, please stay safe. Next Tuesday, April 5th, we have the Sandy Hook Lecture with Rebecca Sofer, who will be presenting on Healing Comes from Acknowledgement, the importance of storytelling and narrative and loss. So important in this day and age, you know, with war and COVID and everything we've experienced. So please join us on Tuesday. Be safe, take care, and we'll see you live in through the Zoom next Tuesday. Bye-bye. Take care. Thanks for listening to Grand Rounds. For the most recent updates, please consider subscribing or find us on our Facebook group, Connecticut Children's Continuing Medical Education, or online at ConnecticutChildrens.org slash podcast slash grand dash rounds.